Uh, I'm going to give, today's divided up into three talks now, and then we'll have a break at about midday, and then another talk on uh, epihilism, and then the lunch break, and then we'll have a Simone Weil. I'm afraid I've, Simone Weil is the, is the most difficult to follow, and maybe I shouldn't have left her to the post-lunch <laughs> time. <laughs> you might find it a little difficult. But, um, and then at the end we'll be able to compare them. I'm very happy, by the way, to be interrupted at any time, though, if there's any questions or comments. Um, but I, hopefully at the end of each presentation we'll have a, a time for questions anyway. Um, so the first presentation is just to give a little background on Ida Stein, um, the, who seems to be less well known. She was born in Breslau, uh, which is now in Poland, I think, as was in, in Prussia when she was born in uh, the end of the 19th century, into a big Jewish family, a devout Jewish family. She had uh, 17 uncles and aunts, and apparently it was very difficult for her to remember all their names. <laughs> she was one of these. And um, they were a sort of mer uh, merchant family. And, uh, but Edith's father died when she was quite young. She was one of the younger of the children. She had eight brothers and sisters. And um, she had to help her mother uh, with uh, keeping the business going. And the figure of Edith's mother is very strong in her life. She wrote a, um, a, a short book called uh, Life in a Jewish Family, where she speaks a lot about her mother as the great sort of uh, figure which held the family together, this big family, and also very capable. She ran the business, that's their house in Breslau, and uh, saw after their cultural education, she was brought up to play the piano. She was always a great lover of music, and uh, encouraged, she encouraged the daughters to uh, follow education. And Edith was particularly um, bright, and um, so she went to uh, the university in Breslau and then went on to Tübingen to study philosophy. Her great love was philosophy. When she, Edith was a teenager, she actually dropped her Jewish faith and practice uh, and became an atheist uh, because she didn't want to have any preconceived ideas of what truth was. She wanted to pursue it without any beliefs, uh, and she wanted to pursue it through philosophy. And in Tübingen, she met the philosopher Edmund Husserl, who was the founder of a phenomenology, and this became her way. She was part of this whole new movement of philosophy in Germany. I'll come on to that. Um, and this pursuit for truth is very much part of Edith Stein's uh, approach to life. Um, she, it was what enabled her, in the end, to move out of her family and to um, pursue truth in the way that her family found unacceptable when she converted to Christianity later on. Uh, and she, it was very difficult. She writes in her life in a Jewish family how difficult it is to leave a loving family like that and to be rejected by them. This was, 
have to come on to that. Um, but uh, this search for truth took her to study this philosophy, and then particularly this style of philosophy called phenomenology, and she's, she's one of the top founding figures of this phenomenological school. Edmund Husserl, uh, Heidegger, and, and um, Edith Stein were the, the sort of the key figures at the beginning. And it's basically, it's quite, I'm, I'm not a philosopher, so I, uh, but it's an attempt to bridge uh, subjective experience with um, the outside world. It was, uh, arose at the same time as um, psychoanalysis, which dealt with the inner world, and phenomenology was trying to see how the inner and outer connected. So it was uh, to do with how you experience reality around you. Um, here's the, uh, um, the cat. Is basically, phenomenology is interested in how this uh, relates to that. What, what, how you perceive things relates to what's actually there. And it's, it's a, a school of philosophy which takes very seriously objective reality out there. So it's, it reacted against the, the psychological movement or the idealism in philosophy which says that the, the inner world is the only reality. They said, no, it's all about how the inner relates to the outer. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. What became Poland? Yes. Yes. She was. She was keen on Edith Stein. Yes. Um. Um. This is another thing which explains uh, phenomena. Is trying to separate out your perception of things from what's actually there. So the phenomenologist would learn to bracket their personal reactions in order to see what's there. So anyway, this little boy is, is uh, doesn't like the picture. Um, he's being taught just to, <laughs> to analyze his experience, uh, to try and, um, anyway. Excuse me, is this writing wrong? Could you read it? Oh, it just says, sorry, it's true that some of the slides are, uh, it says, instead of it sucks, you could say it doesn't speak to me. <laughs> anyway, so, um, and Edith Stein's uh, doctoral thesis was on a specific aspect of this, which is how we know the experience of others. She wasn't so concerned with um, the physical awareness of the physical world as Edmund Husserl was uh, in a scientific way, but more how we know other people exist and how we feel their experiences. So she wrote her doctoral thesis on, the, on this thing called empathy, which is how we feel what someone else is experiencing. Um, and even in this uh, doctoral thesis, she makes a step into what became one of her most known areas, which is about the nature of, of women, of women, what the particular gifts of women are. And... Um, she felt that empathy was uh, a particular gift of, the, of women, that they're able to experience what other people feel. Um, there's not... Uh, so, anyway, she, she talks about this later on, much later in her life, when she 
converted to Christianity, she also felt this was the key to understanding the importance of Christ, that Christ, um, by, by living with the mind of Christ, we're able to ex- feel what other people feel, because if we go out of our own ego, really, and we learn to experience much broader... Uh, so, anyway, this was her contribution to phenomenology. She... This <laughs> Yeah. How would it, how would you like it if the mouse did that to you? <laughs> to, to learn to feel empathy, that the reality of another person's experience, um, she felt was. Yeah. So <laughs> it's easy. It's easy to to feel empathy if you're. Um, suffering from the same thing as another person. For example, if you've got headaches or and the other person has headaches, you can sit down and have a good chat about what it feels like to have headaches. Um, but of course, the, the challenge of empathy is to be able to feel something which you may not feel yourself, and yet feel it as real in the other person. Um, she, so if someone some other trouble, which you, and to be able to feel that. And she thought that was a particular gift to women. They're able to go out of their own personal experience and feel uh, something which they may not, um, as real, which they may not personally know as from their own experience. Um, so she, she went on from doing uh, this doctoral thesis, working as an assistant with Edmund Hussle, this was a time, uh, during the, the First World War, she worked as a, a nurse in the Red Cross. Um, there's a picture of her working as a nurse. And this also shaped her way of seeing things, being able to relate to the suffering of others. Uh, she then went on to be, a, uh, be a, a school teacher. This was a time after the First World War when women were still not allowed to take teaching posts in universities. So although she was one of the top philosophers in Germany at the time, she was not able to take on the teaching post, so Heidegger went on to take on the post which she could have taken um, at Tübingen. And so she she became a school teacher. That was really the only form of education open to women at the time. And she became also a champion to try and... uh, raise awareness of the gifts of women and how they could be used in education. Um, so in, in a series of lectures she gave on the place of women in society in 1918, she said there's no profession which cannot be practiced by a woman. Women are indeed, and this is quite radical at its time, uh, and then this particular characteristic, so she's sometimes feminists like Edith Stein, and sometimes they don't like her, because she did always insist on a particular um, a sort of essential quality of the feminine, which was to do with being wife and mother. Now, the feminists didn't like, don't, nowadays don't like this, but she always qualified that, that it need not be uh, literal wife and mother in the family, but that, that quality could be applied in, other, in all walks of life. So she said, women are indeed destined to be a wife and a mother, 
usually in a physical sense, but always spiritually, in an office, factory, in parliament, in religious or public life, women will continue to be wife and mother, standing by people's side and helping them to develop and grow. This quality of wife is the quality of being able to stand by someone's side uh, and support them. The quality of the mother is to help people to develop and grow. And this, this, to take it outside of the family and apply it in all professions. And she said there was no profession where this couldn't be relevant. So anyway, she's, she's still controversial as to whether one considers her feminist or not. <laughs> Depends how you understand feminism. But certainly she, she was pioneering in trying to open up uh, awareness of women in professions at the time. And then she started to um, go through a sort of religious conversion uh, during this time. Uh, where she discovered God, this seeking of truth. It was always orientated by the seeking of truth. Um, but then she started to see that God was this objective reality to which uh, truth corresponded. Um, and she started to feel, although she'd given up her, her faith and was considered herself an atheist, uh, this longing for truth was itself a form of prayer. It was what was... Um, connecting her to God. She said, God is, whoever seeks truth is seeking God, whether they know it or not. Um, in 1921, this seeking of truth, uh, she speaks about it. Uh, the way I put it, the K drops off. She suddenly sees truth. She is no longer seeking. She, she's um, staying with um, a professor friend and uh, the book by the bedside is the autobiography of Teresa of Avila. And um, she spends the whole night reading this autobiography. She's absorbed in it, reads it in one night. <laughs> and at the end, she said, well, that is truth. She, and this was a sort of conversion where she realized that the, the truth was in religious faith for her. And she went on doing her studies while teaching, um, where she related uh, the phenomenological study with, um, with uh, the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. She felt that Aquinas also had this sense of objective truth, that there was, there was a reality to things out there, irrespective of the way we see them, or we had to be aware that our, how... Um, our way of seeing corresponded to objective truth. And she felt that was uh, witnessed to in Aquinas. This was rewritten in 1933 with an interesting little appendix on Teresa's interior castle, where she makes a, a comment that the, the, with Teresa in the interior castle says we come into the castle of the soul through prayer. That's the only way we come in. And Edith Stein asks whether that really is the only way we come into the experience of the soul. And she knew philosophers like Herschel, who she felt had discovered the soul, and yet were not religious people and would never have said they prayed. And she's thought that um, the way into the soul need not be just prayer, because from the center of the soul is the place from which conscience comes 
and also is the place where freedom is. So you can come to, to into the depth of who you are through following your conscience and through a sense of freedom. And then you might not be able to read that problem. I always tend to use peak, the whole bit of the slide. So. But anyway, so she says, the center of the soul is a place from which conscience can be heard and the place of freedom. And she's in, this is quite, I think, quite an important thing to realize that atheists can be in touch with the center of their souls. They need not be praying or, or believing in God even because of conscience and freedom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, if anyone, yeah, sorry, I should have said that. If anyone doesn't, it's a bit of a distraction trying to write it all down. I'm very happy to send the PowerPoint with the, with the quotations afterwards. If you just contact uh, Kate, I can happily send them. So you don't need to copy everything down. <laughs> uh, so she goes on giving these lectures on, on this, the, this time on the spirituality of Christian women. Uh, this is the time after her conversion. And um, she again talks about this particular quality of the feminine, connecting it with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit she starts to see as this connection between uh, the... Um, as that which sort of connects things. And this is what phenomenology is interested in, how the inner and outer are connected. So says about women, combining gifts of compassion, counsel, and wisdom, women are by nature, this is why some people don't like as a feminist who talks about the essential nature of women, women are by nature called to reassure, guide, and inspire others. They assist all creatures, leading them to perfection. This womanhood-serving love, um, Frau die Liebe Dienst, she always calls she always uses this phrase in the German, Frau die Liebe dient, womanhood, women serving love. This, is, uh, this womanhood serving love is a real image of the Godhead. You could see the primeval type of feminine being in the Holy Spirit who intercedes for each in their need. So the Holy Spirit is a particularly feminine aspect of God for, for her. It has this reassuring, guiding, inspiring quality, which is what he, she felt was the essence of the, of, um, the women. Um, anyway. So I'll do a little bit on what I call the mysticism of Edith Stein. Sometimes she's well known as a philosopher, as a writer on, on um, women, uh, uh, but she's not always known as a, as a sort of mystic, really. Um, this is why I'm brought her in now, mysticism. Even before, in 1920, before she uh, had her conversion to Christianity, um, she sp spoke of this practice, of, she'd already discovered God as being truth, uh, a practice of being still. Even in a busy life, she was a very busy teacher, um, 
and lecturer, um, not the university lecturer, but informal lectures she was invited to give. Um, and she spoke about a, there's a state of resting in God, an absolute break from all intellectual activity. And this is a very intellectual person who discovered this way of absolutely cutting off intellectual activity. And, where, and during this time, one forms no plans, makes no decisions, and for the first time really ceases to act. So letting go of all that activity, and one simply hands over the future to God's will. And this became her practice. And I think we can relate to this as, as a wonderful description of meditation, really. We're, we're letting go of thought, action, decisions, and we just hand it over. Later on, in one of her letters, she puts it like this. Um, the only essential is that one finds, first of all, it's the only essential thing in life, she says. One finds, first of all, a quiet corner in which one can communicate with God as though there were nothing else. And this must be done daily. That's the, the only really important thing, the daily practice of taking a little time in a quiet corner. She wrote um, in 1932, uh, while she was the teacher, she wrote this um, letter on which she called Ways to Interior Silence, um, which is, she says, by becoming empty and still, no, becoming empty and still are closely connected. In the soul, by nature, one thing always replaces another. Nature always abhors a vacuum. So in the mind, the thoughts continue to come and go because the soul, she says, or the mind is in constant agitation, often in tumult and uproar. That is why peace is a supernatural gift, which we can and what we can and must do is open ourselves to grace, which perfects nature. So by nature, the mind, we might say, is wandering and we have to open ourselves to this interior silence. And she sees it as a, as a gift, as grace, as, as something supernatural, beyond, the beyond our own capacities, um, which we can only open, dispose ourselves for. Again, very influenced by Teresa of Avila, who said exactly the same thing. Teresa was one of those mystics who said, well, don't try and do it yourself. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and Einstein uh, starts this letter by saying that. Um, <laughs> and she was writing as a, as a very busy teacher and lecturer. The duties, and she speaks about waking up in the morning, the duties and cares of the day ahead crowd about us as we wake in the morning, if they have not already dispelled our night's rest <laughs> or worries about what we have to do. Now, at the moment we get up, arises the uneasy question, how can this all be accommodated in one day? When will I do this? When, when that? How shall I start on this or that? So we're busy from the moment we wake up. Thus agitated, we would like to run around and rush forth. Certainly, if you have a demanding profession like she had, 
this is all the feeling you've, you've got to rush out of bed to get it all done. But she says, stop all that. <laughs> uh, we must then take the reins in hand and say, take it easy. <laughs> Not any of this may touch me now. My first morning hour belongs to the Lord. So she dispel all the demands of the day for the first hour or half hour or whatever you can in the morning. Give that first time uh, to God. Take that first half hour easy is her advice. <laughs> so this is it. When, when um, Before all the demands start, you just take your, your time of meditation. And she speaks of the, the busyness of her life and how she has to do this. And then you can, you can respond in a much more... Uh, you can do much more, actually, if you keep, keep that peace of mind. Uh, and she says, with God's help, all things become possible. <laughs> Little dog down there. I mean, taken for a walk. I didn't see that. Hoovering, shopping, <laughs> dealing with the baby, cooking, answering the emails, all at once. <laughs> so, um, so, anyway. <laughs> so the first thing we on the to-do list is to do nothing. Um, so she says, I will tackle the day's work that God gives me after I have given him myself. First thing is to give ourselves to God and then do everything else. So she says, um, first thing in the morning, she says, so I kneel in prayer, laying myself with all my doings and troubles at the Lord's feet. And at the end, I may ask, so the most important thing is just to lay it all down. At the end of the prayer, she says, I may ask, Lord, what do you want of me today? And after quiet dialogue, I will go to that which I see as my next duty. She just goes to do what she has to do. You see this comes up in other, the others as well. They just do what they have to do. Uh, so really, it's not so much asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? You just do what you have to do. But the important thing is to let it go at the beginning. So giving yourself to God at the beginning of the day. Uh, it, it ain't much, but it's all I got. It's all I ever wanted, is the answer. <laughs> um, so if you, give your, if you give this time at the beginning of the day, she says, I will then be joyful as I enter my day's work after this morning prayer. My heart will be empty of that which would assail and burden it, but it will be filled with the holy joy, courage, and energy. And so maybe... Not everyone's experience, but we can give a little time to try and get that experience. Uh, she says, because my heart has left itself and entered the divine life, it becomes great and expansive. Love burns in it like a composed flame that the Lord has enkindled. So God has put love into our hearts because we've given that time. Uh, 
And she says, and it sees clearly the next part of the path before it. We see what we have to do, basically, in, in the day. She says, it does not see very far. We may, we may not see what we, the future, or, but it knows that when it reaches the horizon of what it now sees, a new vista will, be, will then be opened. When we get to the... We live moment by moment, and even though we might not see the future, we trust that when we get to the point where we have to do it, we'll know what we have to do. Um, yeah. Now, she says that's, um, that's her experience in the morning prayer, but the real test of it is during the day's activities, the real day's work. Um, that's when all this holy stuff or pious giving of your heart to God is tested. So she said, this, this lady is, when was your last stress test? Well, I went to work yesterday. <laughs> Going to work is the, is the stress test. Um, all these things will, will come at you, uh, and all the difficulties of, of our day, it can take many different forms, whatever, and that's when it's when the, the real testing happens. Um, when <laughs> everything comes at once, we might like to be all mindful, but, but it's <laughs> we lose our mindfulness. Um, <laughs> uh, when we... This was... <laughs> This was me a, a couple of days ago when I thought I'd deleted all my slides. <laughs> so can, and she says this can happen to her. She's dealing with students, dealing with lecture demands, dealing with uh, all these things. You can get driven to distraction. Um, and then she can feel sometimes, like I did when I thought I'd deleted everything, oh, what have I done? At the end of the day, all you get is sense, oh, dear God, what have I done with this day? despite having that time of prayer. And then she says, even after all that, the thing is um, to come back to a time of prayer at night or in the evening. When night comes, and retrospect shows that everything was patchwork, and much which one had planned, left undone, when so many things rouse shame and regret, then take all as it, as it is, lay it in God's hands, and offer it up to him. So at the end of the day's mess, <laughs> bring, offer it all back up to God. Um, in this way, you will be able to rest in God, actually rest, and begin the new day like a new life. I think that's beautiful. Begin each new day like a new life. <laughs> that's the, the art. So this is the resting resting in God. So important at the end of the day to let it all go. Not carry the carry the, the regrets and shames and worries into the night. Let it go. And then it's a new day, it's a new life. Start again. <laughs> the whole process has to start again of giving the first moment to meditation and then being tested by life. And this testing of life became quite strong in her, in her experience because of this, um, what happened in Germany in the 1930s with the increasing um, persecution of the Jewish people. 
she was a, a, a leading sort of Catholic teacher. Uh, this is before she's become a nun. That hasn't happened yet. She's still a lecturer, um, and but is also a Jewish convert, and she feels very connected to her Jewish background, although she was rejected by her family because of her conversion. Um, and she wrote a letter to Pius XI uh, about the situation that he... This is the famous letter which wasn't answered. <laughs> um, anyway, as a child of the Jewish people, also as a child of the Catholic Church, I dare to speak to the father of Christianity about that which oppresses millions of Germans. And she felt very, I mean, she was removed from her lecturing. She wasn't allowed to continue lecturing. Finally, she was removed even from teaching in schools because she was Jewish. And this is, in the end, she wanted to, by now, she'd, she'd wanted to become a nun, particularly uh, Carmelite. Um, but she wasn't advised to do so by the, the, church, the Catholic Church leaders because they, they saw she was so valuable as a, a Catholic lecturer and um, it was only when, when the lecturing and the teaching got taken away from her by the National Socialist government that they finally said oh well you can become a nun now there's nothing else you can do so she, she was very happy to finally be allowed to become the nun um, in Cologne but she was very aware of, of what was arising in Europe at that time and she felt very connected to her Jewish um, background. Uh, she said, this is in one of her letters, I thought it was beautiful. You, she writes to a Catholic friend um, and she says, um, you don't know what it means to me when I come into the chapel in the morning and seeing the tabernacle and the picture of Mary, say to myself, they were of our blood. <laughs> this is the actual family connection with with Jesus and Mary. Mm. So in 1933, when Edith was 42, she entered Carmel in Cologne, and her family finally dismissed her. None of them came to the um, to the uh, when she became a nun. That was the last straw. So her mother even said she has embraced the religion of our persecutors. She felt that the, because. Christianity had not been very um, positive about Judaism over the centuries, and now the National Socialists, of course it wasn't Christian, but it was. they felt that this was all part of the same package of anti-Semitism. So anyway, they, they didn't like her coming into the convert. One of her sisters, Rosa, um, when her mother, when Edith's, Edith used to write every Friday to her mother, not about religion, just wrote friendly letter every Friday, never got a reply. Uh, the mother wouldn't reply. When the, when the mother finally was dying, she did write to Edith. Um, and she also, after she died, one of Edith's sisters, uh, who had secretly become a, a Christian Catholic, had um, also joined the convent. Uh, oh yes, I'll come, I'll come on to that. This is when she joined the convent. She'd been a, uh, an academic, and uh, she. It's interesting. One of the things the mother superior said 
this sort of tendency in convents in those days to make sure they were humble. <laughs> the Mother Superior said to, to Edith, I've been told that in the world you were such a clever person. Here you become more stupid every day. <laughs> because she was hopeless, apparently, at, at domestic work. She utterly hopeless. They said they used to watch her sweeping a room and they couldn't believe it that she could, could just didn't have it. Anyway. But she, she loved it. I mean, it was heaven for her to be in the convent. I mean, she laughed so much. And yet, one nun commented, this is in the, the book which sort of, of the, written by the nuns in, in the Carmel, of her, their reminiscences, that she always has a rather sad smile. And it's true on all the pictures. There's a rather sad smile. Um, and they said, you look like a Pieta without Christ. You know, Pieta is a, is a statue of, of, of Our Lady holding the dead Christ, the dead, the dead body of Christ. And uh, they said to her, you look like a Pieta without a Christ. You look like Our Lady without holding the dead body of Christ. And one time, Edith replied, Christ is my people. So she was holding the, the Jewish people uh, and that's maybe why she's got this sad smile. She had to leave the convent in, in Cologne because it was in Germany and there were fears because of her Jewish background that she would uh, not be safe. So she was moved to the convent in, in Holland, in Echt. And um, this is a picture that actually bombed in the war, but they rebuilt it. This is the convent in Echt. I went, I went to visit it, um, where she was. And um, she wrote this treatise, the hidden, uh, the hidden Life is the Prayer of the Church. It's quite an interesting treatise. Um, she, anyway, she talks about this uh, experience of God in stillness and quiet and connects it with the Prayer of the Church. Uh, she says, the work of salvation takes place in obscurity and stillness. It is prepared and accomplished in silence. So this is where it all starts, not through going to church, not through believing things. It's this experience of silence. And so it will continue hidden until the union of all. So this goes on, this silent salvation in people's hearts. Um, it's got a bit disjointed. And this is what she calls the mystical stream. Uh, and this mystical stream flows through all the centuries. Uh, and it is not some, what she calls, spurious tributary. It's not some, something little unimportant offshoot of the, of, the, of the prayers of the church. It is the deepest life of the church, she says. Um, and when the mystical stream breaks through the traditional forms, it does so because the spirit is uh, blows where it where it is into into the traditional forms. So in the convent they would do this meditation, but she felt this was a sort of the renewal of religious life involved refinding this mystical experience, and it's connected. She felt this was always connected with the, with the church. Every sincere prayer, something happens in the church. 
And it is the church itself which is praying within every true prayer, whether people see themselves as part of the church or not. So she is quite churchy, more churchy than, than Etty or Simone Weiss, but she, she sees that this prayer of the church is going on in people, even if they don't, um, not part of the church or believing in God at all. It's the same Holy Spirit um, which makes her home in the church and intercedes also in every individual soul. It's the same thing. Anyway, it's an interesting little piece. Um, What could prayer of the church be if not great lovers giving themselves to God who is love? So that's the um, the essence of it. <laughs> yeah. She says, uh, "What the prayer of the church? What it is? If, what is it? What could the prayer of the church be if not great lovers giving themselves to God who is love?" This giving of the heart, which is very much centre of her spirituality, giving your heart uh, to be a great lover, is to is to really give your whole self away. Um, this other thing we talk about the heart, but then she's also known as um, she took uh, Saint Benedicta of the Cross is her religious name, um, and she became very. The, the idea of the cross was very central to her. Um, she wrote a book later, whoops, The Science of the Cross. Um, anyway, she says that, um, yeah, how the cross is experienced. It's not just, the, she says that in the church, we, or the Catholics or Christians, we understand what the cross is, but all people are experiencing the cross. And she particularly became aware of this in the Jewish people at that time who were suffering crucifixion. And so it's not uh, something which Christians have. <laughs> All people have. So I... Uh, Excuse me. I'm just in, in this, this idea of the church is not just the church. Yeah. And um, her Jewish background. Um, there is the, the idea of the invisible church. I don't think she ever wrote about the invisible church, which is... Which is not the institution, yeah. but as it were, all those who are turned to God. I mean, Augustine mentions this, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, because it seems to me that, that I, I don't know very much about science, but it's one way of holding the Jewish people and yet claiming her part of a universal church. And of course, the institutional church is always very suspicious of the universal church because, in a sense, it's, it's not an archaic, it's spirit-led mm. as opposed to hierarchically led. Yes, yes. But she's definitely felt that the church could never claim a monopoly or, or kind of that it had a sort of mystical prayer. Mystical prayer was much bigger than the church, but the, she felt there was this connection all the time between the, um, the prayer of the church and this mystical thing. So she was... Um, but it could never, yeah. So I, the invisible church, yes, she could have used that that term. She could could have done. Um, I don't think I haven't come across it. It's sort of the kind of term Simone Weil might use more. Simone Weil had a 
as we'll see, felt that because the church, and this was of course the church before Vatican II, I mean, this was a rather fortress kind of church. We have it, no one else does, rejecting the world. Uh, so this is what she's speaking to. And um, she's trying to bridge the gap by saying, well, it's, it's, it's in what the church has is also outside the church. Um, Simone Weil had the same experience, but felt that she couldn't enter the church because it was too narrow-minded, and it, because of the truth being so much more than, than uh, just the, what the church says. Uh, Simone Weil felt she couldn't enter the church. Um, anyway, the, um, it's part of the Edith Stein goes back to the phenomenology thing, connecting her own experience to the experience of others who may be having quite a different experience. So her, she was very churchy, <laughs> but she connected that experience with people who were not churchy at all, and she said, oh, they're, they're experiencing it as well. Yeah. Um, so she says here, I told, she's praying to, this is actually a memorial in Auschwitz for her, we'll come on to that, but, um, she, when she was in the convent in Aix, she said, I told our Lord that I knew it was his cross that was now being placed upon the Jewish people. That most of them did not understand this, but those who did would have to take it up willingly in the name of all. I could do that. I was certain that I had been heard, but what this carrying of the cross was to consist in, that I did not yet know. I think I'll leave that out. That's uh, just another little treatise she wrote. I put it in probably in the wrong place. It's an interesting little thing where she says that the, the, the Gospels, the sacraments, all the externals of the church are important, privileged places of encounter with God, she says. But what is still more important is to be touched by God inwardly without word or image. This touches intimate, a personal, experiential knowledge of God. This is more important than all the others. And this is a Catholic saint saying that. Um, and, but then she's, she's concerned to connect them. Uh, we can shape the words and images according to the original. We can then relate to the scriptures and to the sacraments according to our own experience of God, which is the, the real McCoy. <laughs> And then they, we start to recognize our God, the God we experience, in his portraits, in his pictures. So the, the Gospels, the sacraments, they're pictures of God. But we start to recognize our God in his pictures. Um, she says it's a bit like going, meeting, if you have a picture of someone and you have to meet them, uh, hold on. No, if you if you know someone and you have to meet them at the train station, it's easy to meet them. You see someone you know, you just run. Oh, there he is. If you're given a picture and you don't actually know them, it's quite hard to really recognise them from just a picture. So it's the same with God. If you're just using the scriptures and the sacraments and the the external, the sort of expressions of God, without this inner experience, you don't really recognize God. But if you recognize God, and then the moment you'll give, if I know someone, and um, I'm given a picture of them, I say, oh, well, that's so-and-so. 
you immediately see the pic- the person in the picture. And he says, she says it's the same with the way we relate to to the forms of the church. Once we have the inner experience, we can recognize the value of them. But without the inner experience, they don't really work. Or they they're limited in their, how they can affect. It. She, this um, science of the cross is an interesting thing. She makes a distinction between carrying the cross and um, being crucified. Something Simone Bay really makes in, a, in affliction, the difference between suffering and affliction. Carrying the cross is suffering and it's something we do and it can be sort of heroic in a way. Doing, But being crucified, you can't do that. It has to happen to you. You can't crucify yourself, you can carry the cross but you, and um, this is passive and this is this is, it is affliction and we need other people to put us on the cross <laughs> um, and she felt that this is what um, the experience of the of the holocaust was um, this crucifixion and that she would uh, how who will turn this enormous guilt into a blessing for both people? She felt herself very German, very Jewish. Uh, the victims, we would have to carry, we would make atonement. Now, some people say it's a bit strange, but she felt she would call to offer herself up as an atonement, as a holocaust, uh, to uh, atone for the, for the get what was being done. Anyway, it's a curious book. <laughs> Not a sort of late night reading book. Um, and this is what happened. The, 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 finally, the, when the Nazis invaded uh, Holland, and then the Catholic Church in Holland made a stand to try and defend the Jews. They had to wear their yellow stars and everything, and they were being gradually persecuted. The Catholic Church made a stand, and the Nazis turned on the church in Holland and particularly turned on any Jewish um, Christians. Normally the Jewish Christians, especially if they were in a convent, they were hidden away. Now, Edith Stein was, was well-known, because she was a well-known philosopher, and they came to the, to the convent um, and uh, said that she, she has to come. And they took her to Westerborg, the transit camp in, in um, Holland, and then uh, she only spent a few days in Westerborg, as we'll see later. Etty Hillism records her arrival with the other nuns, the other Jewish Catholic nuns in, in Westerborg. And then she was taken to Auschwitz and um, Im- immediately gassed on, on arrival at Auschwitz. Um, there's a. So. I mean, this is so sad because one of the great philosophers um, and, a, and a saint. But anyway, the, when they came to, to get her at the convent, um, she felt that this was what, what she was called to. And her sister, Rosa, which was, had also joined the convent by this time, and her sister was taken as well, and her sister was scared. They kind of knew. The sister was scared, and she said, um, "Come, we're going for our people." That's the last words 
people heard from Edith Stein, come, we are going for our peace. Um, always find that so sad. <laughs> and, anyway. and it's um, that's why she's sort of important in Jewish Christian dialogue because she really connected the two again. So I'm sorry if I cry. <laughs> I think it's more from the Catholic, the Catholic side. She gave a way of um, owning the Jewish thing, or our Jewish identity. As Christians, we are come from this Jewish background, and it's been sort of dismissed. And she created a way of owning it, or, uh, which, of course, in the Second Vatican Council, this is all prior to all that one, in Nostra Aetate was the, the sort of owning of the, the Jewish um, so now actually in the church the Christian-Jewish dialogue is not interfaith it's, um, it's not considered interfaith it's, it's the same faith uh, but that's either Stein's sort of influence but how you describe how you understand that I mean the problem with the way the church uh, treated the Jewish people through history, which is was so appalling, and in many ways, uh, kind of was a preamble to the to the persecutions by in the later on, which were the Nazi persecutions. But um, so that's in many ways the problem: how you understand so whether Christianity has any kind of right to give any sort of Opinions on, on on what the suffering means of the Jewish people. She felt that the suffering of the Jewish people was the crucifixion, and that's why she felt, in the end, and which is now, in many ways, it is the official teaching of the church that the Jews don't need to be converted because the, the covenant with Jewish people is never changed. So there's no need to convert Jews. <laughs> There's no need to convert anyone, really, but they don't, they, they officially say that with the Jews, because, um, and they yeah, they've gone through the, the, the Christian experience, even if they haven't, I mean, gone through the experience of Christ in their history, even if they don't know Christ, as a, they've actually lived Christ. Across our only hope. Yeah. Hope of unity. Mm. 
Yes. Yes. Yes, she feels the cross of the... Again, it all links back, I mean, it's all connected to this empathy thing. This being able to feel the suffering of another. And the cross is a universal suffering. Everybody carries the cross in one form or another. So it's a, instead of seeing it as a sort of a Christian experience, it's a, a way of entering into the, the suffering of everybody. Um, Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Yes, well, that's a feminist movement of. She, she was very early on, and there was a later movement of feminism which sort of said, well, don't use this essentializing language because it. It, um, one, it continues to create the inequalities because we're different. She was always saying men and women are different. She would always say that. And so later feminism said, um, get rid of these essentializing things because, yes, it doesn't do a favor to men and it, it sort of typecasts women always. Um, so, yes. But there is a sort of move back now a little bit, I think, to see the specific... I definitely, and John Paul did it, and he got a lot of criticism for sort of particular gifts of women. Like they got these sort of particular gifts. Uh, and then, uh, so um, but it can be a bit patronising. <laughs> um, so they do it. I mean, I... Yeah, I'm not... I'm no, I don't really know. It can be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Even, yeah, it's sort of a, you yeah. um, So I don't, yeah, so you one can admire her, although that she was very concerned that the professionally women could be, uh, all professions should be open to women. A bit of an issue on the women priests. She actually, she actually is interesting in her writing. She says um, she can't see any objection to it, uh, but personally, she doesn't feel it's right. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering, actually, given the time, the time that she was writing, yeah. um, as a woman and as a Jew, as a woman in an essentially a male-led organisation, and as a Jew in a culture which is predominantly Christian, that I wonder whether that might be, in a sense, a reclaiming of something which was despised. Mm. And so it makes sense in her period. Today we look at it from a slightly different perspective. But she said, I may be a woman, but we actually have special gifts. Yes. I may be Jewish, but he has a special role. Mm. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes. I think, yes, the, maybe it was, yes, they take, the, definitely the, um, the sort of maybe using partly the, 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 the um, conventions of the time, but reading them in a positive way. For example, women women are wives and mothers. That is normally, or was used, as a, as a sort of way of kind of keeping them in the home. And she uses that same language, but says, no, oh, this is, can be applied to all professions. 
I mean, use that quality in all their professions, whatever they're doing. They stand by people, they help, they, they kind of help people. So she's kind of taking, reusing the kind of, uh, that language. But this is a long time ago, and feminism has moved on, and, as, as, and, and Jewish-Christian dialogue has moved on. Because although, I, have, I mean, the other times she wrote this, she did talk about the Jewish people, um, uh, um, what was it, in the last, one of her last letters, something which the Jews quote is, is very um, unacceptable. I can't even remember what it was. It was something like that they had rejected they had rejected Christ or something. I mean, she, she used some of that language, which was really old language and not helpful. And sometimes she makes it positive and sometimes it's just still still there. And it's like, mm-hmm. And so in some ways she's quite, we see with, with Simone Weil, Simone Weil creates a whole new language and won't use any of this old language, which either Stein still uses it. Um, and... But the Jew, and, and also in Auschwitz, the fact that the, the Catholic Church made such a fuss about Edith Stein dying in Auschwitz. She's a saint, and there's a sort of convent there, and monuments, and I mean, she was one, just because she was a Catholic, when all these millions of non-Catholic Jews died at Auschwitz, and they're not commemorated, well, they are, actually. Why the Catholic Church has to make a fuss, particularly of this one, rather than any of the others, when there are many saints as well. And Etty, Etty thought that, uh, that um, this experience created many saints uh, and broke many people at the same time. <coughs> yeah. Yes. And she was famous. She was famous not just in the church. That was why. I mean, she was famous as a philosopher. And as a champion of women's rights in those days, that's what she was seen as. Um, so she was well known outside the church. So the story of her uh, murder um, was shocking to the intelligentsia of, of the, the world at that time, in a way which, because uh, she was sort of well known. But of course, there were many Jewish well-known figures also happened to them. She's a bit older, yes. That's right, yes. Yeah. Now we're going, we take a little break. The other talks are a little shorter. This is the longer one because I included all the philosophy stuff. The other ones are just going to look at their spirituality.